As far as opening fortnights go for a Six Nations Championship, it's fair to say that the 2023 edition is well up there. Chaos in Dublin continued Scottish superiority and a first England win under Steve Borthwick among the discussion points. And joining me, Brendan Gallagher and Chris Hewitt today is former Italy centre Tommaso Costello. Okay, I hope everyone's got their breaths back. Off air, I was just talking to our guest today, Tommaso Costello, about his weekend at Twickenham. Tommaso, how are you? Have you recovered? I am very well. I haven't recovered yet. I'm probably recovering tonight, hopefully, if I get a good sleep. Because after the, the game in Twickenham, which was, of course, the main event of the day, I ended up watching the Super Bowl last night. It was completely <laughs> for me. <laughs> so, yeah, long day. A lot of sport, a lot of fun, but, yeah, definitely need some, some time. Is that your first Super Bowl that you've watched, did you say? It is, yeah, yeah. Never watched it, at least. Okay. Never watched it live. Uh, I didn't really watch the game that much. I mean, I was in a good company. I had a few pints, maybe too many. And uh, good fun, you know, good time. And yeah, I went to bed after the for the, the first half break. It was too late and I was yeah. too bad. I know the Chiefs won, uh, but that's all I know about it. That's a hell of a day, that. Chris, Brendan, did you stay up for the Super Bowl? Uh, no, I used to, but no, not this one. God, no. People in helmets. I can't go ahead around it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tommaso, talk me through your day at Twickenham yesterday then. What time did you get to the ground? Okay, so starting from when I woke up, which was relatively early for a Sunday, it was 7.30. I, I didn't think it would take me that long to get there, but it, a hell of a trip getting from Cambridge to, to Twickenham. So I, I caught the train at, I would say, 8.28, if I remember correctly. Got to King's Cross Station, got the tube Victoria Line to Vauxhall. To Vauxhall, I changed the train to Twickenham and then walk 15 minutes. So I got there relatively on time. I then left after after the end of the game. We still had a couple of pints, a bit of uh, networking. And uh, I was back by 9.45, 10 last night. Hell of a day. Hell of a day. Yeah, we need well... to go to the... To the Cambridge tab to watch the Super Bowl. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm impressed you made it back in time. Well, no, it was hell of a day. I was lucky. I was lucky. I actually, got to King's Cross. I didn't check the trains. I was, I, I had too many beers, so I wasn't really at my best. Uh, I just got there wishing there was a train about to leave, and eventually there was. So I was very, very lucky. You know? <laughs> we, we've, we've, we've the all been there. Closed and it started. So. <laughs> We we have all been there. I mean, I think the the trains are less kind than they used to be, though, Chris. Well, uh, that's 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 what you get with the Tories. Sorry, I didn't mean this to be political. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realise you were socialist, Chris. Um, well, no, you don't mention no, that a lot. No, neither did I until Margaret Thatcher came to power. <laughs> right, hell of a day for you yesterday, Tommaso. Hell of a first couple of weeks in the Six Nations. Obviously, that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, just sum it up, a thriller in Dublin that pretty much lived up to the hype. We'll get to that last. Yet another Scottish statement at Murrayfield and a first England win of the Steve Borthwick era. Yeah. No Nick Kane today, he's taking a night to himself. Maybe he's had, he maybe he stayed up for the Super Bowl. Tommy, let's talk about Italy first. Now, yesterday there was obviously a lot of talk about how you guys probably won't have many better chances at winning at Twickenham yeah. than you did yesterday. Were you yeah. a bit underwhelmed by what you saw? I think that eventually we were confident and aware that we could, like, I'm not saying winning the game, but at least put England in a 
in a bad situation, putting England under pressure, as probably has never happened, or at least not recently. So I think that all the players were mindful of that. But eventually England showed that they are just a better team. Their forwards were impressive yesterday. I think they scored three tries from, from a mole. And that was a solid performance. I mean, when the forwards are so dominant, there is not much you can do. You just have to hope that somehow they don't get the mole um, and they and they stop because they, are, they they were unstoppable yesterday. I think that England needed to win that game. They really wanted to play. They played a solid rugby. Proof is they put a ball carrier at 12 instead of having two playmakers because they wanted to have a physical game. They wanted to carry the ball, play in vertical lines. So credit to them. I mean, there's nothing I, I could say. I think Italy played the best game they could play, but England is just stronger than us. So, you know. Eventually, this is this is a game where who's stronger always win or ninety nine percent of the time. And yesterday, England showed that they are better than us at the moment. Two, two things, two things struck me, Tommy. I don't know whether you agree with this. A, a it, the the first thing that it, it was a it was a re, it's a big plus point for Italian rugby that people were talking in terms of a possible upset. I mean, no one, no one ever really. I mean, in in a very long time, no one has spoken about the the, the prospect or or, or the, the the better than an outside chance of Italy really really pushing England hard. So yeah. I think that's a reflection of the way it, the, the Italian side has come on that they're just holding they're, they're just held in much greater esteem at international level than than they were two three years ago. Yeah. And the other thing that struck me was that. It's still a fault in the Italian side that they seem to take so long to catch the pace of the game. And when they do catch the pace of the game, they're competitive. But you can't give a team 20 minutes. Yeah, and I remember that a while ago. The problem was the opposite, that we started well and then in the long run, we would lose because the last quarter was the one where other teams will smash us, basically. So... Um, to build on your first point, that's already a massive achievement for us, you know, having this team of the entire uh, world rugby, basically. It's already something that means some steps forward have been made. Uh, the hardest thing is to confirm that esteem, having people to really respect us when we play. And the only way we can, we can do it is by playing as we played, I think, especially against France, but against England somehow after the first 20 minutes as well. It's not much about the result, which is definitely what matters the most. But in this sense, for the growth of the team itself, being competitive and showing a good rugby is what matters the most for Italy at the moment. We are such a young team. I don't remember who I think Castro Giovanni was saying that. And I think he was right. Um, this is not the year of Italy. Next next one is will not be the year of Italy. Italy will have their best year in three, four years' time because the, the average age is very low. And if these players keep making experience, I mean, if you count the number of caps England had yesterday and compare it to the number of caps of the Italian side, the, the game should have finished like 18-0, you know? But it didn't. So I think that the expectations are very high at the moment, maybe even higher than they should be. But it's good because... Us as Italian, we live of passion and we 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 live of excitement. You know, we wanna 
we want to feel that kind of feeling and losing games like yesterday is almost it's also good because it takes us back to the ground after france we maybe thought we were better than we actually are and by losing like we lost yesterday we now know that there is still a long way to go but we are definitely on the right on the right road i thought yesterday was also another reminder of what a brutal tournament the six nations is uh, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, Italy were probably two or three percent off what they were against France. Wasn't quite at that level. And if you're not quite at that level, six days later, seven days later in Twickenham against an England who need a win, it's not it's not going to happen. And I, I thought there's plenty to be encouraged by. Um, past Italy teams might have disappeared in the second half. They didn't. They played some very good rugby in the second half. Yeah, and went with the heads high. But like you say. Um, they, they weren't going to win that match. You could see early on that England had the plan. They were going to keep it up front. It wasn't going to be pretty, but they were going to win that match. And there wasn't much Italy could do in the end. And look, in total fairness, I mean, Italy is 12th, I think, in the world ranking, probably 13th or something. So it's not likely that... And it's not the game Italy has to win, right? Not, I mean, winning at Twickenham for a team that is currently holding the 12th, 13th position in the ranking is not something that would be, I don't know, uh, normal. So again, that's not the kind of game Italy is expected to win. That's exactly the kind of game from which Italy is expected to learn a lot, make experience, especially the players, the younger players, so that when it comes in two, three, four years' time, the same opportunity. Hopefully, we will be in a better place in terms of ranking because we would have won other games that would have led us mm. to move forward. And that's when we will be really competitive, I think. Tommy, how many canals? How many games did you actually play against England for Italy? Mm. Two. You, you got injured in, in the second one, if I yeah. remember correctly. Um, yeah. So, obviously, England are the only Six Nations team that Italy haven't got a win over. Yeah. We speak about, or we, in the past couple of weeks, we've spoken about like bogey teams. And by that, I mean England, Scotland have become a bit of a bogey team for England. We argue yeah. that Wales were a bit of a bogey team for Scotland. You know, they maybe overcame that at the weekend. Do you think England have that aura for Italy at the moment? And did you find that when you played England, that there was that little bit of extra mental strength going into Well, there is definitely a part of mental uh, bias and England, like, if you have never won against someone over, I don't know, 25, 30 games, you start thinking that, oh, okay, we have always lost. So maybe if we lose again, it won't be much different from what it was. So somehow you have an excuse, you know, even though you definitely play to try to win that game. But like, I think that the hardest part is winning the first game. Then once you have won it, once you know that you have already done it, then you can repeat it. But doing it the first time is always harder. So, yeah, I think there is a bit of mental weakness in that sense when it comes to play against England and the All Blacks, which are the only two sides we haven't won, uh, if we speak about Tier 1 um, national teams. But our time will come. I mean, if you look at our under-20s, our under-20s, I was won two out of the last three games against England under-20s. So I don't see any reasons yeah. why in three, four, five years' time when those players will become the major part of the senior team cannot repeat themselves. As I said, it's just a matter of time, I think. I think that the coaching staff 
and I, I must say also the federation and like the policy that has brought Italy to play as they are playing has been correct so far. And if if they continue this way, I am sure that the result will come. Well, you've got you've got the right coach, Tommy, haven't you? I, I, absolutely. I, yeah. It was clear yesterday it, that at halftime, I mean, Crowley throughout the first half looked as though he just eaten a, a sort of wasp sandwich. I totally um, but, but, it, but he always looks like that anyway, whether, whether Italy are winning or losing. But it, it was clear by the way Italy came out for the second half that he'd put an awful lot of clarity into people's minds in that halftime break. And they, they played different, differently. Um, they asked far more questions of England. They caused them a good degree of discomfort in that second half, actually, for quite long periods of time. And that all that all comes from clarity of purpose. I think you 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 can't. It's not the age of Giovanelli anymore, is it? You 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 cannot push a stronger side to the very limit by playing in a red mist. You have to do the opposite now. Absolutely, and I, think, I think that's what Crowley brings to the side. I think that you are. I totally agree with what you're saying. I think that Crowley is the real uh, difference. Is the real reason why Italy has improved so much over the last couple of years, eighteen months. And again, if he can work for a little while more, the benefit will be improved. What is the real challenge? I think is finding someone who carries on what Crowley has brought, because he will not be the coach of Italy forever. I don't know if it will be for the next four years after the World Cup. I don't see it very likely to happen. But if it does, good for us. If it doesn't, we really need to find someone with his mentality and with his charisma as well, because he's a person that I think, and I think that that's the most important skill, especially a, a national team head coach must have, is get the best out of your players, because you don't have them for enough time to kind of um, tailor their skills. You know, you have grown men that have their set of skills. They have pros and cons. They know how to play the game, but like at different levels, what you need to do is get the best out of them. And I think that Crowley, in this sense, is the best person. And one big advantage he has is that you have 20 Benetton players in the squad. Yeah, exactly. I mean, six years. I mean, he... It he is all a consequence of knowing players. the players very well, right? Yeah. I mean... If so that really... fast-tracks it, doesn't it? He, yeah. He knows the players better than most national coaches. He, know, know he, knows, he knows most of the players very well. He has coached them for many, many years, which is, as you said, absolutely a, a plus in terms of knowing what a player can do and how he, he would perform at his best. So... Yeah, I mean, the situation is bright. I think that the expectations are very high. As I said, maybe too high. Coming to London with uh, people saying, okay, we're going to win the game it was probably a bit too bold. But, you know, sometimes it's good to set high expectations and goals because that's the only way you can achieve them. Maybe not, not as soon as you set them, but eventually you have a target and you you target yeah. it and you, you work to get there, right? You also had a New Zealand referee, and there's ne never been a New Zealand referee in history who's understood the scrum. So, <laughs> um, so you you uh, in 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 the tight where you really had to perform in the tight phases scrum scrum line out. You you needed a break from the referee a little bit, I think, and and mm. that, that that really wasn't forthcoming in the early stage of that game, and that gave England a, a platform on which to build. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't blame the ref. I think that England, especially in the first five, was just better than us. 
yeah. that around the breakdown and like they they very they, they played very very physically yesterday. Well, I remember England was was renowned for having a, a a scrum pack that would scare everyone, and maybe it wasn't like that recently. I think that after last performance, people and players and teams are gonna improve their respect for the current players because they show that if they put the physicality and the aggressiveness they showed against Italy, they can really be dangerous for every side, I think. Not only but they, they they picked the right guy on the open side flank, I think, uh, on this occasion. And Itoje was ten times better than he had been against Scotland. And and that's a big that's a big difference. If you've got a bo- a genuine ball winning seven at test level and Itoje who's one of the very few genuine world class players we've seen in, you know produced by England in in the last I don't know ten years let's say um and if he's going to play to his level then that's a re- that's a really big that's a really big bonus and he didn't he do that against Scotland and he did against you <clears throat> yeah, yeah 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 just to come back to something that you said Tommy and I was going to ask you about this later but you mentioned expectations forward thinking then what are your expectations for Italy you know I think the question usually is will they get a win? I Would think you so. Say, yeah, you think they'll get a win? We still have to play Ireland and Wales home and Scotland away, right? Yes. And looking at Wales, I think that it is, I mean, it is normal thinking that that's the game we are targeting. I'm not saying we are not targeting the other games. I mean, we, I mean, every game is a, has its own history and especially for us, playing home is different than playing abroad because of our culture and like, mentality and so on and so forth so I think that both games home will be very interesting especially the one against Wales but I wouldn't say it will not be the one against Ireland as well I see it harder to go and play in Scotland Scotland is performing really well and for us as I said play abroad is not as as easy as it is to play home so the expectations are definitely to win one game out of those two that we play home Hopefully two, and I see Scotland very hard. Honestly, do do you think, Tommy, that, that when um, when Italy were playing at Stadio Flaminio, yeah. which was which was in in international rugby terms, it was it was a unique venue. It was it was relatively small, but it had it just had a an an air of its own. It, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't a sort of identical stadium that we see so many of around the world now. And 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 Rome, it seems to me, is is a, a football stadium being used for rugby, where where yeah. the Flaminio just discomforted visiting sides because it was unusual for them. It was genuine foreign territory. A, a lot of good sides didn't like it there very much. Yeah, and, yeah. No, that's that, that's a that's a very good point, and that's a debate that Italian rugby has had since they moved to Olympico. Actually, there are still people who are advocating and supporting a comeback to the Stadio Flaminio, which is currently in a very, very bad shape. But apart from that, I agree with the fact that the environment and the vibe in the, in that stadium was different than from uh, the Olimpico. I still think that playing at the Olimpico, even though it's not like playing in Flaminio, still means something for us. But like if it was on me, if it was my call, I would definitely go back and play in Flaminio, for sure. Because as you said, like... You have the crowd much more closer to the pitch. Yeah. It's a completely different environment from most of the other stadiums around the world. It's different. You you, you feel you are in Italy there, you know? The Olimpico mm. is a stadium that you could find everywhere. I think that the Flaminio yeah. is particularly typical in that sense. 
maybe South America has some sort of similar stadium. Well, uh, it actually took France a little while to find their feet at Stade de France. Um, they, they, they. I mean, the Parc des Princes was a different atmosphere entirely. I mean, it's yeah. a brutal atmosphere yeah. and very, very intimidating for opposition for opposition sides. I mean, you and and you see sometimes they record, you know, some of their best results in Marseille or in Nantes. Let's say, I, I mean, yeah. ra- rather than rather than Paris. And I think there's a little bit of that with the Italian side that mm-hmm. ha- having a really unique venue and something that is is absolutely all about Italian rugby and not about. About Roman Lazio, yeah, 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 and also, yeah, that's another good point. I think that having a stadium like, like most of the other uh, national team I have, uh, that is only for rugby. That's the home of rugby. For Italy, is not a stadium where the week before played Roma and the week after, or even the day after, as it has yeah. happened already, plays uh, football. Would would be different because it will make you feel even more proud of playing there. You know, that's where you want to play and. Uh, yeah, no, I I agree with that. I don't know what will what will what will happen, especially over the last few years before we won against Wales. Uh, since there were fewer and fewer people to come and watch us, especially in not very important games, I think that the discussion was going on whether or not to go back to Flaminio because the Olimpico was half full and watching a half full stadium is definitely sad. But now it seems like people are more likely to go and watch Italy because of how they perform. So maybe these sure. uh, good performances are uh, more beneficial to stay where we are at the moment than if we kept losing where with fewer people, then we would be more likely to move. You know what I'm saying? Like well, you watch against winning more games or playing better uh, is pushing us away from Flaminio. Yeah, but against Ireland, I mean, Ireland fans always travel to Rome for many reasons. I'd be surprised if you don't get 75,000 in the Olympic Stadium for that match. And if I remember the 2013 match when Ireland travelled in in numbers, they had a, almost as many fans as you, but it made the atmosphere. And, I, and as you remember, Italy won that one um, yeah. that in 2013. So it's a huge stadium, Olympic Stadium, and for me, it doesn't come alive until you get... There's a sort of threshold of about 60, 65,000 fans you need, and then you get the atmosphere, and then At it's least. a fantastic venue. But mm. below that, it becomes a little bit, any like like Chris was saying, any other designer stadium around the world, really. Yeah, agree. But I think, like you say, um, Tommy, the brand of rugby that Italy are playing now probably feeds into the fact that you will be able to fill out that stadium on a more regular basis. I think it also helps to have a superstar. And I think the Italian team now has a superstar in Ange Capuot. So I don't know whether, you know, we speak about him being sort of the face of Italian rugby, whether you can speak on behalf of back home. And that is indeed actually true. I Yeah, I mean, he's definitely a great player. He has, he has shown it. Uh, I don't know when he made his debut, probably last year in the Six Nations. Uh, yeah, Scotland. Yeah, it was Scotland. Yeah, exactly. And since then... Look at what he has achieved. I mean, he was named best young players of the world. He has scored incredible tries. He has, like, within one year, he has become central to the team. He's unreplaceable. And he's definitely, as you said, probably the most iconic player we have at the moment. But, like, this is a team sport. So I don't like to say, I don't think there are a star and non-star. I mean, Italy... 
Italy has improved not only because of Andy Capuozzo, that's my point. I think that they have improved because all the other players, even those who maybe don't see that much, allow him to have space and carry the ball. And like I think that he, he is playing well because the rest of the players are playing well. And of course, yeah, he has incredible skills. When you have a bit of space, he's uh, super dangerous for any side, including England. And it is good to have someone like him because people recognize him and people get passionate about him as well. So it's helpful. So let's hope he carries on like that. But he he, he makes the opposition play slightly differently, doesn't he? Because they, you know, well, they, everyone they is more worried. Yeah. Game, that's for sure. Because you don't want to be kicking. You don't want to be kicking to him in space. That's... Yeah, yeah, no, that 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 is true. Uh, he, I think that not is every opposite opposition knows that how dangerous it can be. So as you said, yeah, that forces opposition to play slightly different than they would if there was someone else playing at fifteen, which uh, most of the time is better for the team for for us. But again, like I would like to underline that it's not just Capuozzo. I think that the like the improvements have been brought by the entire team, not only not only yeah, by sure. one player. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. By superstar, I suppose what I meant was like I was speaking to a few friends that were at Twickenham, and they were like, "Oh, it was cool to see Capuzzo." Oh, impersonal. sure, no, that I kind mean, of he's, the, he's, the, he's the guy everyone wants to see, right? Everyone yeah. wants to see. I was sitting in Twickenham yesterday, and the guy next to me was like, oh, "Yeah, Capuzzo is very good. Yeah, he's great." I don't think Italy has ever had such a, or at least not in the recent period. Well, I remember Minozzi played a great Six Nations in 2018, mm-hmm. and it was very similar as a style of players. Uh, Capuzzo is probably more quick or more impactful. I don't know. Uh, but I remember Minozzi was considered uh, outstanding and incredible back then. Now we have Capuzzo. It's the team overall, I think. Yeah, no, 100%. Right, let's... Let's move on to England. It's it, it was a divisive performance, wasn't it, guys? And Chris, you already mentioned one positive, and that positive had seven on his back. Um, just go over the positives for England yesterday, because it was a step forward, wasn't it? it the, the size of the step is up for debate. Yeah, um, I, I, I think that, that, that generally generally speaking, they'll come, about, come out of it with um, feeling quite good about themselves. It, 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 it was a slightly awkward game because the mood around... The England support and the and and the press and what have you was pretty downbeat. Um, it was it's a big lift to see someone who's had a terrible time like like Jack Willis um, to be just it was a big lift to see Jake Pelledry back actually on the field. I mean when when somebody has sort of real career threatening injuries and they come back and 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 stand up in the international arena, that's quite heartwarming stuff. So I think Willis was a a, a big a big plus for them. Itoje's form was a big plus. Um, there, there's 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 a bunch of stuff there. Ollie Lawrence was obviously a pretty big plus. I think that looks more like a midfield that you can work with, especially if they're going to mix and match with first receiver and have Slade standing in it as, as a ball play in twelve um, in certain attacking situations. Gives them a lot of options. I think that's quite good. I'm, I still don't know enough about Hassel Collins to, to work out whether he's an international class player. I'm surprised I don't go and just go and pick Anthony Watson because I think he is an international class player. Absolutely. Um, I think Ellis Genge and Ludland, they've had two good games. Uh, Carl Sinclair did a little bit more against Italy than he did against Scotland, but it would have been difficult for him to do less against Italy than he had against Scotland. Um, uh, I, I think Chesham's a big find. 
there's a, there's a load there's a load of good stuff and and I, I I like the idea that Alex Mitchell is back in the mix. I think he's the best scrum half in England by a country mile. But hey, what do I know? Um, you know, somebody wants to pick Moro Bergamasco at number nine. So um, people, have different, <laughs> people have different views on the scrum half position. Um, but no, I think I think it was pretty good. And and people are still moaning about Farrell and saying, oh well, it was back in the Stone Age, and he doesn't do this and he doesn't do that, and there's no pace and what have you. I don't remember Johnny Wilkinson having much pace either. I don't remember Johnny Wilkinson tripping the like fantastic like Marcus Smith or Bowden Barrett. Um, Owen Farrell does a bunch of things, as we said last week, that I don't think England can afford to be without, actually. Um, you want him for his goal kicking, you want him for his defence, you want him for his aggression, you want him for the whole sort of fighting spirit thing. So I'm I'm pretty happy with that. And as the Slade and Lawrence partnership develops, I think there's something there for them to work with, for sure. But, Isn't it funny, oh, by the way, guys, that three weeks ago, Ollie Lawrence wasn't even in the 36. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, now we we are big fans of Ollie Lawrence here, as you know, and um, I was very pleased they did mix and match because I think he's more than just a truck up twelve, yeah, and that, and he did truck it up on occasions, but yeah. they did also use um, Slade coming in as as second receiver, so that was good. Well, um, they, they did this, Brendan. If you remember, in, in the in the in the World Cup, in the World Cup warm ups in 2015, and I know English rugby's tried to just to draw a veil over what happened in 2015, but in the warm ups. With with my dear friend Sam Burgess, of uh, I, I mean I have nothing but terrible things to say about him as a rugby <laughs> union player, um, but hey ho, everyone knows my history there. But uh, Henry Slade, they were using Henry Slade in precisely that way in the World Cup warmups, which was which worked. You could see the sense in it on yeah, opposition yeah. ball. Burgess plays at twelve. He could tackle like a ton of bricks. He could certainly do that. Um, and on attacking ball, they played Slade as the second ball player, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Get in the World Cup, it goes out the window. And they picked yeah. Brad Barrett and Sam Burgess together, two non-passing yeah. centres. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. you just as well not have a back three. Yeah. Well, Henry Slade played in two junior World Cup finals as a 10. Oh. He, he, you know, he's, he, he's, a, he's a playmaker. So and I a, left foot right. kicking game. a left foot kicking game. Absolutely yeah. priceless. So I think England have got their midfield. Um I'm not quite so sanguine as about Owen Farrell at ten, and not. I, I hear everything you say about him. I would have picked him at ten for the Wales match. I think that's exactly his kind of match. I would have picked Marcus Smith for the Italy match. I think that's exactly his kind of match. So I'm not quite sure what we read it into yesterday's performance from Owen Farrell. You know what you're going to get from him. England were a little bit ordinary, I thought, but they did a job of work, and we mustn't fall into the danger of saying, "Oh, it was only Italy." You know, we're, we're praising Italy. They beat Australia. They they beat Wales. They gave France almighty hurry up. That was a pretty comfortable England win over Italy in the end. And actually, you know, that's not bad. You, you'd actually take that. Yeah, that's something that makes us feel like uh, proud, you know, because eventually being recognised as a side that teams uh, have to play well to beat. It's something that makes you feel okay. Then yeah, yeah. I belong to the same like world yeah. as this guy play because if it was like oh it's Italy, we we yeah. win no matter how, then it would be okay. That's a bit frustrating, you know. Yeah. But I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, having um, the midfield that England showed yesterday. Having someone who carries the ball at twelve but can also pass the ball, and having someone skillful as uh, Henry Slade at thirteen, I think is the best combination a team can put down. Having two playmakers plus one, which is almost another playmaker, 
in the midfield doesn't doesn't take anyone anywhere i think you need to have some verticality in the game and i think that Oli Lawrence yes they played really well doing exactly what he needed to do so if if this combination gets more confidence i think that that's going to be a very very good um setup for for england I just realised as well, that's the first collision we've had, I think, on the podcast of two former podcast guests between Ollie Lawrence and Tom, um, Tommy Allen. And well, I, <laughs> I think I think one side will remember that collision more fondly than the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, poor, poor Tommy had Ollie running at him quite hard all day, which is exactly what England wanted. Brendan, I was yeah. going to probe your general knowledge a little bit, and I was trying to probe my own as well, and I'm not sure what the answer is. When is the last time you saw a performance by an England 12 as good as that of Ollie Lawrence yesterday that wasn't Manu Tuolangi? Oh, now you're talking, yeah. I mean, you have to go back to Brad Barrett, I think. Yeah, I think you're probably I right. mean, Brad Barrett, 2012 against New Zealand. New, against New Zealand. He was playing the that, task yeah. that, um, yeah, he was very, very good that day. Brad Barrett. Yeah, I think that would be a fair shout. You know, 11 years is probably it. Yeah, I initially thought Luther Burrell, but then he started his career at 13, didn't he? And then yeah. Yeah. him shifting to 12 didn't really work. I could name you I could name you about 500 performances by Will Greenwood, all of which were better than anything, virtually anyone's ever put on the field for England, but that's a long time ago now. Well, maybe you can do that. Will's on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Why don't you save those those for when he is on? <laughs> no, I, no, I'm not going to praise him to his face. I'll never last at it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, Brad Bat's a good one, actually. So I think I think we'll settle on that. Look, I'm conscious of time, so I think we're going to have to move on. Let's go to Scotland-Wales. Two wins in two for Scotland now for the first time since 1996. Tommy already touched on it briefly that, you know, Scotland at Murrayfield is now looking like a hell of a prospect. We'll come to how that looks from an Italian perspective in a second. But it was just another statement. Finn Russell is back to his very, very best. Their physicality is fantastic. Hugh Jones is looking like his old self. They've got threats left, right and centre in the back line. Chris, is, could this finally be their year? Actually, this time? I I, I, th- I, th- I think it's hard. I, th- I think both... both... The, the the France and Ireland games, I, I still think they're a nudge on from anyone else, actually. But I, I think I think Scotland have got a lot to work with, a heck of a lot to work with. I like the battle. I mean, that's beginning to look like one of the. I, mean, I don't know what they're going to do if when Hamish Watson's fully fit, what have you? Whether whether they bring him back, um, but it's the, the Scotland pack is beginning to look like a proper handful in the way that the great Scottish packs of a long, long time ago used to. And they've got, uh, they, they will, as you say, those, those threats outside are terrific. I mean, they're, they're, they're as exciting a backline as there is in the Six Nations. And I just don't know the last time you could have said that about Scotland, even begun to say it about Scotland. I mean, it was, you know, they look as though they can score from anywhere on the field. I think the really interesting selection, I mean, let's leave Finn Russell to one side. I mean, he was absolutely sensational on on Saturday. He's got that, we were saying last week, he's got that whole body language about him, the old glint in his eye. He looks capable of anything. He looks willing to try anything. And that's, that's that's a, a reflection of the confidence in the side. The interesting thing, will be whether they keep Blair Kinghorn at fullback instead of Hogg. Because yeah. there is a growing mood in Scotland that Kinghorn's a better fifth option at 15 than Hogg. And that will be it will be very interesting to see what they do with um with that. Because Hogg, 
Very, very talented player though he is, but he makes an awful lot of mistakes. A lot of mistakes. And I don't think Kinghorn makes it. King, Kinghorn looks at me like Gavin Hastings incarnate. You know, he's, he's got, he, he he's obviously um, runs a lot oh, quicker. Yes. He looks as though he's running. Um, and he's got a big boot and he's just, he just seems to be very, very calm under pressure. I like him as a player. And I, I, that could be the big call that Townsend makes. And it'll be interesting to see if and when he makes it. I thought it was very interesting with Finn Russell. He had a pretty ordinary first half, which people forget. I mean, nothing drastic, but it wasn't quite firing. But he's in such a place at the moment that that doesn't matter. You know, he, over 80 minutes, he is going to pull something out of the hat. And he pulled about three things, four things out of the hat, second half. And once it, once he's off, you know, that's it. Scotland are off. And it was terrific. I think he's he's um, he's benefiting from a, Ben White, as I think Chris picked him out a couple of weeks ago. He is really coming on as an international scrum half. So that is a nailed-on combination now. And Hugh Jones, I mean, we loved him at Quinns a couple of years ago. He showed all those skills for Quinns. In fact, he yeah. showed a lot of those skills in bits for Scotland. But he's now looking the complete centre. I mean, some of his passing was up there with Russell. Absolutely sumptuous passes. And he's very sharp over 30, 40 metres. Uh, and he knows where the try line is. You know, that is, like you say, it's a very potent back division. And the match against France in Paris, that's one, oh. one to savour. Okay, can anyone tell me what Richie Gray's having for breakfast at the moment? Oh, he lives about 22 now. Absolute madness. I mean, he's, you know, I mean, I, I honestly thought Richie had sort of jacked it in and pretty much was spending his time coaching. I know he was doing a yeah. little, you know, play, play, still playing in France, but I, I couldn't work out a year or so ago how serious he was about playing top-level rugby. And now, I mean, guys, he's playing like a world beater, you know. He's playing incredibly well. I mean, well enough to keep his kid brother out of the side. And that's, yeah, yeah. that takes him doing because Johnny Gray ain't half a good player. I am I'm a very big fan of the Scotland backline. I think they are the most enjoyable one to watch, especially because of Finn Russell. I think he's probably the most talented player of the entire Six Nations. And the combination they have in the midfield, Hugh Jones and Tupelo too, like one very hard ball carrier, the other one that knows how to run into the space. They really play well. I think they are the best backline of the Six Nations at the moment. And to think as well that they're missing their best back from last year's Six Nations as well in Darcy Gray. And it, yeah, it, it is a bit yeah. mad actually. So, Tommy, how does a trip to Murrayfield to face that backline look as an it's an Italian centre? Would you want to be lining up opposite to a Pilotto and Hugh Jones? Well, of and course, I would. I would love to <laughs> <laughs> if I could. Yes, I would go there working. No, as I said before, I think that's the hardest game we are going to have. Uh, we have two home games and then we play in Scotland or I don't know the order, but that's definitely going to be the most challenging one. And I think, uh, as you just said, Scotland is in a very good place at the moment. Uh, they are full of confidence and they really believe they can make it, I think. So it will be interesting. And I mean, playing in Murrayfield is always special. Playing against this Scotland will be very hard. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall when when Gregor Townsend and Finn Russell finally came to their their um, their, their their agreement, their rapprochement. I mean, I, I don't know who gave way on what here, but it's you know whether Gregor suddenly remembered that he was once every bit as big a maverick as Finn Russell was, and was very <laughs> and I'm not saying difficult to coach. I mean, but he was. I mean, I mean, Gregor 
was not frightened of trying things all over the field, some of which, you know, may not have worked. And and he, he, he's, he's had to share a coach's climbing up the wall, Gregor, down the years. Now, whether this was all a behavioural thing, I mean, part of it obviously was, but it's it's just fantastic that Gregor, who was the early architect of Finn Russell's career, has, has come to this rapprochement with him. And Ooh. I think between the two of them, they can they can really come up with ways of making that Scotland back division better even than it is at the moment. And that's exciting. It's exciting mm. for Scottish rugby, for sure. And just forward thinking, how absolutely mental is that World Cup group looking of Ireland, South Africa and Scotland? Three uh, of the top five in the world. I mean, it's bonkers. Yeah. Absolutely uh, bonkers. You know, South, South Africa out in the pool phase. I mean, how hilarious is that? Yeah. <laughs> not, <laughs> not inconceivable by any stretch. Right, gents, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I look do. forward to the Rassi Erasmus video already. He's probably rehearsing his lines as we speak after that performance <laughs> of the weekend. Um, right, what we're going to do, I did have some stuff written down about Wales, but we're going to move on because of time, because we've got Jiffy on next week. So I'm sure we'll hear many of his thoughts about the state of Welsh rugby. So do tune in for that next week. Tommy, we didn't do a random rugby 15 last week because we ran out of time. We are going to do your random rugby 15 this week. It's 15 quick fire questions. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Nickname. Well, Tommy. Tommy. <laughs> Any others or no? <laughs> easy, easy. I can actually... Juggernaut. When I when nice. I started to play for Zebra, I was yeah, my nickname was Juggernaut because I wouldn't pass. I would just carry and destroy myself <laughs> against anyone. So, yeah, Why didn't they just call you Manu? <laughs> well, that's probably too much. <laughs> Best rugby memory. Best rugby memory. Well, I've been lucky. I had a few. I have more than a few best rugby memories. I would say my debut with the Italian national team is probably the best one. But also the first Italian championship that I won with uh, Calvisano is uh, probably at the same level. Yeah. Most embarrassing rugby memory. Most embarrassing, I would say. I remember once I tried to uh, to play quick uh, twenty two, but yeah. like, <laughs> I dropped the ball. I couldn't. I couldn't catch the ball. Sorry, I knocked off the. Oh I no. The ball, <laughs> and I was like, in, there was a. The, the TV and all that stuff. So I, I really looked like an idiot because I couldn't even play it fast, you know. And so, that means that means you can rewatch it as well if it was televised. Yeah, I don't know how. I mean, it was not a very big game, but okay, it's out, I'm sure it's out you there. Might find it. Yeah. Pre-game tune. Pre-game tune. I think that has changed over the years. I started listening to Eminem mainly, and then I ended up listening to Italian rappers. I would say Mundo Marcio is probably the one I used to listen the most. Yeah, Mundo Marcio, yeah. Were you awake for Rihanna's halftime show? <laughs> I was, night? I was. Yeah. I actually just waited to go home after the Rihanna's. Oh, uh... no, it's okay. How, <laughs> how was it? I actually haven't seen footage. It was, yeah, it was impressive. I mean, yeah. I'm not a big fan of it, but it was interesting. Post-game meal? Everything that is available. I love post-game <laughs> meals, especially when you play international level, you would have pizza, hamburgers, yeah. uh, fries everything that you can imagine and like dream because eventually when you prepare for playing those games like your daily uh, routine and meals are very strict so after the game is the only real time when you can do whatever you want basically best player you've played against this is another good question in terms of like skills i would probably say uh, johnny sexton but in terms of Facing someone who was very hard to take all and very, very good player, would say Manu Twilangi. 
the best player you've played with? Bull Griffin. Oh, nice. uh, yeah. Let's come off. Fantastic yeah, yeah, not what I expected you to say. He was the captain of Calvizano when he arrived yeah. in 2011 and like, he was so talented, I think. He was already 37 back then, but he could play standing, basically. Yeah. And good hair as well. He could, see, he could see things yeah, happening like big 10 hair. seconds before anyone else on the pitch. That's awesome. Favorite player right now? Favorite player right now? I really like Hugh Jones. Okay. Center. Yeah. I also like Stuart McCloskey, even though he's less talented, he's more physical. I like yeah. how he carries the ball. Yeah, probably one of them. Probably Hugh Jones more. Yeah, I think he's very good. Rugby idol. Rugby idol. Well, I was I, I was grown with uh Bod playing at 13 for Ireland and Leicester. He's always been the, the best player that I could watch. So yeah. But favorite stadium. Favorite stadium, um probably Murrayfield. Okay, nice. Yeah, when they sing the national anthem is uh, yeah. seriously goosebumps. Yeah, can't can't argue with that. Uh favorite gym exercise. Well, you know me. <laughs> not that, That's not, the only one that matters, right? Not that weird squat on the yoga ball that you do. No, 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 no. That's just fancy. That's the, just, that's <laughs> just to have people looking at me saying, hey, what is he doing? <laughs> no, no, bench press, 100%. Occupation if rugby didn't exist? Yeah, good question. Actually, this is what I am trying to understand now <laughs> since rugby was uh, finished before I could imagine. When I was a kid, I dreamt about becoming a airplane pilot. So maybe I would have pursued that route if I wasn't playing. Awesome. You should speak to, we've had Tony Underwood on. Tony Underwood, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. He, he's become an airplane pilot. Ex-Cambridge as well. So a bit of a parallel. Uh, superstitions. Superstitions. You mean something that I avoid, I, I don't want to do ever, right? Well, just or like something you did to give you luck before a game or something like that. I would have my routine and I would do always like 12 uh, push-ups. Okay. Always, yeah, always 12, everything 12. <laughs> okay, I interesting. Probably well, because I would play 12, yeah, but yeah. I would do 12, 12, 12 sets of each exercise. <laughs> It's, not, well, it's, it's, high, it's hypertrophy. It gets the pump to fill out the shirt as well, doesn't <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. You feel, <laughs> you feel stronger. <laughs> rugby law, you would change? Uh, I don't know. I feel like rugby is getting a bit too strict somehow. somehow. I mean, I, I understand that rules need to um, take into account that it's a very dangerous sport and there must be very strict rules. But I feel like over the last five, six years, probably rules have become even more strict. And sometimes I don't... I don't see why people get yellow carded or even red carded for something that wasn't that dangerous. So I would say that I would probably get back to how the play was played, how the game was played, yeah, five, six years ago. And finally, best thing about working in rugby? Well, you, if you work in rugby and you are a player, you are, you are lucky because you are doing, your job is doing what you love the most. And I think that's something unmatchable in any other situation of life for every athlete. So, yeah, that's that's the best part of it. And especially if you are lucky and good enough to represent your country, you have experiences which are long lasting and you will never forget. I think that the kind of feelings and adrenaline that I have felt while 
singing the national anthem in full stadiums is something that I will never experience again in my life. But I mean, it's, it's in my mind, so I know how it is. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good answer. And I, it is really a really unique feeling that it's it impossible is, uh, to recreate, it is. isn't it? Awesome. Thank Ollie, you before, before, before we move on, yeah. Ollie, um, a couple of mentions of Super Bowl and Rihanna. A gold star for any one of you who can oh, tell God. me the connection between Rihanna's half-time appearance last night and rugby union football. Oh, <laughs> oh Chris. Why why are you why are you looking at me? I, I, I think Bruce Springsteen is cutting edge. <laughs> what, are you, what are you what are you guys talking about? Well, well it's an odd one. It's an odd one. I, the dress what? is designed. By the son of Willie Anderson, the, oh great, Northern, the great Irish second row and number eight. Wow. Really one of the world's leading uh, designers. Yeah, wow. That is a hell of a connection. Well, thanks for that, Brendan. Um, okay, let's move on then. It feels like we're finishing the episode on the climax of the weekend, which was Ireland versus France, which ironically was the first game of the weekend. Great game of rugby. Yeah, well, that's what obviously everyone's saying i'm ashamed to say i was playing rugby during the game so i've only watched it on catch up um, not as well as they were no <laughs> without a doubt although the 13 outside me had a stormer he might have something to say about that so 46 minutes of ball in play now people are saying up there with the all-time great six nations matches um my reflection of it having watched it back first half without a doubt chris do you agree that it's up there Oh, it, was, it was outstanding. I mean, it, it, the the pace and the the ferocity and the intent and actually the clarity. Go back to that word, clarity that both sides were playing with was really impressive. Really impressive. Uh, we spoke last week about Dupont, and and uh, Brendan said that he he you know having had had relatively maybe some sort of 85 percent gains, he was absolutely full tilt. On, on Saturday and if I was Dupont I'd be pretty upset to have played like that and lost the game um it was it was terrific all round I admired I admired the Irish again their game understanding their their complete familiarity with what they're trying to do and that goes back to the coaches again and it goes back to Sexton I think who is a massively influential voice in 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 everything that goes on there um I think Gary Ringrose, who has long been an oh, yes. in oh, my yes. view, is abs is playing the best rugby of his career, and that's pretty impressive stuff. That's imp- my 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 downside with the game, and it, it's not with the game, in, in fact. And you hate the takeaway from James Lowe's finish because it was a pretty ex- extraordinary effort to get as close as he did. But how can you have a system where the telling angle, the and it was obvious that you had to see that thing from behind to get a clear idea of what had happened. How can you have a system where the most telling angle, the conclusive TV angle, is broadcast on your screen 30 seconds or so after the final decision is made? That is completely crazy. And if that happens in a World Cup semi-final, there'll be a hell of a rag. So whoever's running this whole video review system, this TMO system, has got to get a grip. Because and the alarm bell should have been ringing because that, that was Mark Cueto. That was Mark Cueto 2007 World Cup final. Anybody who's ever seen that will instantly know that that call had to be made from that shot but along the tu- along the touchline from behind James Lowe. Everything else was from above. And you could see it was really, really close, but that wasn't the angles you needed. It was 
it was ridiculous. I was a bit surprised that Wayne Barnes got sort of rushed into that a little bit. Um, but like you say, it would, let's not let that detract from the match. It was well, just, moment just because... on this, just on this, Brent. I, I have to say, I don't think it helps. Um, I don't think it adds to the gaiety of nations, frankly, and it certainly doesn't help the referees to be in this sort of cricket situation where they have to make a call. And and the question they ask the TMO then becomes pr- pretty decisive. If Wayne Barnes doesn't know what's happened, just say, I don't know what's happened. Let's, have, the call in the let's have a look at it on the screen. Not say, I think it's a try and therefore I need definitive proof that it isn't. That's leading everyone up a cul-de-sac. That's yeah. not a very good idea. So I, I just think it needs revisiting because... Tell you what, that was a pretty important moment. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying for a second that France would have gone on to win the game. Ireland were good winners in the end against a really, really, really good French side. However, it's something we can do without, and it needs looking at because yeah. there's a lot of big rugby to be played. I thought it was a very big day for Ireland. Um they, they've been juggling with this Johnny Sexton question for a long time. And on Saturday, he went off of what was it 50, 55 yeah. minutes? Not a good half hour, I reckon it was, and the game was in the balance. And they now know that their side is playing so well that Ross Byrne can come in and do the job supported by the other players. And that gives Johnny a new lease of life because he was running around like a 20-year-old for 50 minutes. So I think that's the formula. They don't have, they don't need Johnny on until the 65th, 70th minute. He can come off after 50 and Ireland won't suffer at all. So that was a huge moment for them, I think. Um the rest of it was terrific. I mean, they're a hell of a good side to watch Ireland. And you were saying, is it a Six Nations classic? First half, unquestionably. If you had 80 minutes of that, it'd be the greatest game in history. But I actually enjoyed the second half because it was a huge contrast. It was getting the job done, getting that win, nailing it down, executing, cracking a French team that, you know, did not want to be cracked. DuPont did not want to lose that match. Penno did not want to lose that match. And they just did it pretty ruthlessly in the end. And when Ringrose went over, I mean, a really good try to to sort of celebrate an absolutely you know, outstanding win. So I enjoyed the contrast of the two forty minutes, and uh, yeah, it would be up there in the top two or three uh, Six Nation matches I can recall. It's a big statement. Now, there's one name that so we mentioned Dupont and how well he played, and we could mention Penno and how he played, but some it doesn't player. Seem, some yeah, player. yeah, and you know the fact that you know a team that's under the cost, those two still stand out is testament to that, but. Chris, Caelan Doris. Oh. <laughs> I mean, what, what's he become? Uh, yeah, I, I, I said last week I thought Matt Fagerson was maybe the most improved player in, in Europe or the most improved forward in Europe. Um, I, I'd, forgotten, I'd forgotten. I'm not sure I'd forgotten about Doris. I mean, I think he's always looked a really good player, actually. But, crikey, he is, he is on some wave of form at the moment. I mean, he's he is absolutely terrific. I mean, I I wrote a piece last week about about Parise and and what a just what an astonishing like that astonishing player he was, you know, in a lot of difficult times and in a lot of adversity. And I I don't detract from that that he's the best number eight I've seen uh, in the professional era. However, Doris playing with rather less adversity, I have to say, he's playing in a, a bloody good side. But crikey, he is adding some real venom to that to that Irish pack and with, with James Ryan rediscovering the best of his form suddenly because he'd yeah. gone through a long quiet spell. Um, so you put, you, you put them together um, and you've got, and you, 
Yes, I thought I thought Doris that was as close to a ten out of ten performance as I've seen from from a back row forward in a long, long time. Actually, I, I thought he was terrific, absolutely. And then you throw in Hugo Keenan, um, oh. who I I remember getting quizzical looks from you lot a year ago in the pre Six Nations odd, and I predicted he would be the player of the tournament, uh, and he wasn't quite the player of the tournament, but he you could see then he was going to be a hell of a player. And this year, generally, not just this Six Nations, this autumn as well, uh, and down in New Zealand, he's been on fire. And um, there were some great moments from the match. And I, in my piece, I highlighted, obviously, the, the two tries, the one French, the, then the James Lowe try. I, I wish I'd made a bit more of the Keenan try, because that was yeah. an absolute cracker. And I saw a clip today on Twitter. It's an, an exact replica of the one that Rob Carney got at Twickenham. I think it was 2016, might have been 2014. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was a Joe Schmidt, uh, you know, organised try, coach try. And it was just the same play, exactly the same play. And, you know, those, those those perfection plays work time and time again. And it just looked so easy. I mean, it just, there's four of them could have scored that try. It just absolutely mm. cracked open one of the, you know, one of the better defences. So that, that was a terrific try as well. No, no question about that. And it's also the case, isn't it, Ireland doing this, Without Henshaw, without Ty Furlong, without Gibson Park, who has been who, who has been the real accelerant in there in in the upping of of of, of the pace at which Ireland play. But having said that, Conor Murray played pretty. How well good has Conor Murray been in response? So it's so that they they do have some depth, uh, which is not something you could have accused Ireland of for many many years. But they they have genuine depth in most positions, and not something you could say for a couple of the other Six Nations teams as well. Like if. If England, for example, had that many high-profile injuries in England, English language, that's probably an injury crisis, isn't it? Whereas Ireland, it's it's quite clearly not. And 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 you you see it a little bit with France, actually. I mean, Aldrit is is a few percent off his best at the moment, and you saw him substituted very early by his standards at the weekend. Um, there's no walkie there. Vilemps is still finding his way back in after a, a pretty long period out. Um, Entermax a little bit off his game at the moment, and they miss Dante. So everyone's saying all these players that the French have got, yeah, they they've got oceans of them, but they're not absolutely on a level with the people that they're missing. And uh, with Ireland, it just seems that the interchangeability of personnel is something that we haven't seen from the Ireland side before. Well, I, Tommy I, I was mentioning McCluskey. McCluskey. I mean, yeah, you know, a great player that Henshaw is. He's going to have to go some now. Oh, cracky, yeah, play in that spot. Yeah, I, I think that's a very important difference between Ireland and France. Um, so I'm mm. glad you guys have flagged that, Tommy. So you probably don't know this, but on the podcast we do a predictions league, um, and every week <laughs> we say the what scores are going to be for the weekend, etc. And with the exception of Nick Kane, we had Scott Hastings on. Um, all of us predicted an Ireland win. At the weekend, uh, would you have predicted an Ireland win as well? Mm, no. Would you have predicted France? I don't know. It's hard, hard to say. Uh, I mean, I would say France because after Italy, France is the is the team I I like the most. Even though it might sound strange said by an Italian, <laughs> but I really like how France plays the game. They are so talented, and I really, I really enjoy playing France, uh, watching playing France. But Ireland is uh, at the moment, I think, is probably the best team. 
I really admire your honesty, Tommy, actually, because anyone else would have said, actually, knowing the results. (laughs) Of course, course, Ireland. I mean, I can't believe anyone predicted a French victory. What are you talking about? Who was going to win that game? So you're an honest man. And thanks. And the, be- the beauty is Nick Kane isn't here to defend his um, prediction of a France win, so we can reprimand him at will, which we will do in a second. Um, but Tommy, did you, were you, I know you're very busy at the moment. Did you manage to watch the game live? I did watch it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I must say, I mean, after I retired, but even before, I didn't spend much time watching games because I would watch games to prepare matches yeah. uh, on a weekly basis. So I wouldn't spend much time watching games as a fan which is something I've started doing, I would say, quite recently. Even after I retired, I didn't really enjoy, especially watching Italy wasn't that, like, fun for me. Uh, I must say that now I am definitely enjoying it. And I watched the France-Ireland game on Saturday. Sorry, yeah, when was it? Uh, On Saturday. And it was impressive, and I really enjoyed it. So I'm very looking forward to watching the next. Uh, this Six Nations so far has been outstanding. I mean, all the games that I've seen and watched have been very interesting. And uh, I'm really curious to see how it will end up. Let's talk about that Predictions League then. We've obviously got a little bit of a breather now. So, right, gents, are we ready? And so, Tommy, just to explain, just to explain for the viewers at home as well. So... We send through our score predictions at the start of the tournament and you get five points for a correct result. So picking the quick, um, the correct winner, one point for within seven per team and three points for an exact result per team. Okay. Now, the real loser for this week is not here. His name is Nick Kane, who predicted a France win and joins the Turkey Club. Um, Chris, you're currently the only other member of the Turkey Club <laughs> <laughs> getting zero points for a game. Chris, if you want to hurl any abuse Nick's way, He's not here to defend himself, so I'm going to give you three seconds to do so. The man's an idiot. <laughs> there we go. That's <laughs> pretty much fills the criteria. I'm also an idiot this week. I joined the Turkey Club as I predicted a Wales win against Scotland, which I'm, well, very much regretting. So I got zero points for that. I didn't do quite as badly as Nick because I did guess a 31-15 England-Italy win, and that ended up being 31-14. Ooh. Yeah, I was I was quite proud of that actually. That was quite close. Brendan got three correct results, as did Scott Hastings. So, Tommy, although you're not predicting, you're a part of our special guest team, and you guys are winning at the top of the leaderboard at the moment. Chris, you're looking confused. Well, no, I was just going to say with Tommy's honesty, he could join the Turkey Club in retrospect, which would be, <laughs> which, which, which which would be a first. I mean, I mean that that is a world first. <laughs> Turkey's voting for Christmas, yeah. <laughs> all right, I well, would be proud to join it, yeah. Yeah, all right, well, we'll, we'll accept you, Tommy. Brendan, you're not a member yet. Um, but, do, we get, uh, do they get a tie or something, or a pin or something? Uh, yeah, we can, we, can, we can make that happen, I'm sure. Rubby Paper Podcast stash. Get us all wearing this, the same thing, the pin of shame. The special guests are on 33, myself and Brendan on 30, Nick's on 25, and Chris, you may not be the idiot this week, but you are bringing up the rear on 24. Yeah, yeah. And long may it continue because I, I I don't like to be a smart one. Guys, we'll wrap up there. Um, Tommy, thank you for joining. Obviously, I'll probably see you soon because we go to yeah, university together. Yeah, we are together. probably going to see each other in a couple of days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, but a, it... it was a great pleasure and I really enjoyed it. So thanks for having me again. 
pleased to meet you, Chris and Brandon. It was a pleasure to have this. Good to meet you, Tommy. And before you go, you didn't tell us what you're doing at Cambridge. Are you doing anything exotic? What career are you doing? So I'm studying an MBA at the moment. Yeah. Is that so one year or two year? One year. Yeah, it's the full-time one year. Well, so no, again, thank you so much for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was Thanks, really good Tommy. fun, Tommy. Thank you. Cheers, thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Rugby Paper Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use and recommend the show to your friends. The Rugby Paper is available to buy every Sunday. And to make sure you don't miss it, subscribe through our print, digital and online options at therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions. That's therugbypaper.co.uk forward slash subscriptions to get all our content for as little as 14p per day.